You're listening to Portfolio Builders, a WealthCap Holdings podcast about long-term wealth building and financial independence. Yo, hey everybody, this is Devin, your host for the Portfolio Builders podcast. Um, really excited for today's episode. We are gonna do a deep dive all about investment mortgages with my longtime friend and colleague. We have done a ton of business together over quite a few years. Uh, Jenny Freeze from Prime Lending. Say hey to everybody. Hey everyone. Uh, so Jenny, why don't you, um, to get us started, like introduce yourself, let everybody know how long you've been working in the mortgage industry, just a little bit about your professional background, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into all about mortgages. Okay. Um, I've been with Prime Lending. This is starting my ninth year. I've been doing mortgages for 16 years in the Branson area. One thing I love about Prime Lending is I'm able to do loans in all 50 states. Now, I personally am licensed in 42 states. The other eight states are the attorney-based states in which we still have companies there. Prime Lending still has an office. I would just direct people to those if it was one of the states that I'm unable to do. But love being able to do the investment properties and all the different programs. We have over 400 different programs. Yes, there are times that we have to say no to people, but I know that early on, not at the very end, a week before closing. Those are the yeah. people I'm always going to send back to you, say, here's where we are, and this is what we need to do, and you seem to always have somewhere to direct them, so. Yeah, that's awesome. We love, um, I've it really enjoyed working with you on the investment side. We started working together years and years ago when I was, um, you know, like a residential real estate agent. And you were an amazing help to all of the clients that I worked with back then, which is why when I started working here at WealthCap, I was like, oh, Jenny is an amazing lending partner that we could add. We work with a ton of lending partners. Um, but of course, you have always been one of my, one of my go-to girls, um, just because you take amazing care of clients. And that's so important to me and really important to us here at WealthCap. So I thank you for that. Our clients, thank you for that. And what I want to start with today is kind of what you just touched on, who can and cannot qualify for your conventional mortgage, specifically for investment property. Um, like what are the requirements that it takes for somebody to get approved? Well, we only need a 620 credit score. So there's a lot of um, investors who are asking for a higher credit score with all the changes going on with the market that we're seeing. We're still doing a 620 with as little as 15% down. With 15% down, you will have mortgage insurance, but we can do that. And we always tell people going to the 20% will get you a better rate. Um, obviously, the lower your credit score, the lower or the higher the interest rate is going to be, but rates right now are anywhere from you know, uh, 4.375. And I've seen one that's 5.75 on the lower credit scores. Okay. So credit score is one requirement when it comes to like employment verification and or income verification. A lot of our clients at WealthCap are self-employed. So can you share a little bit about if somebody is a W-2 or if they are self-employed, um, the documentation, what some of those requirements look like? On W-2s, we just need, on every loan, is the last two years of tax return. So we're asking for 19 and 20. Some people don't have 20 done yet. 
Um, so then we're just asking for the profit and loss statements from last year to show that they've made the same amount of money. On credit, if somebody is a W-2 employee, they just have to be on the job basically 30 days as long as they've been in the same line of work for two years. But if they are self-employed, they have to have two years of tax returns. And that's one of the ones that we sometimes run into that I'll have to send back to you saying, okay, I just need one more year of tax returns and we'll be good to go. Self-employment, they just want to make sure that the income that we're using is stable income. So they want to average it between two years. Now, let's say they gave me 19 and 20. In 19, they made more than in 20. We're going to use 20's income because we're going to use worst case. Right. If 20 was better than 19, we're going to add the two years together and divide by 24 months to get their monthly total. So up front, we have a program that we actually put into, it's called Loan Beam. We put everything into it. And it tells me the exact amount of income that I can use for qualifications. So it's not going to be a week before closing. I'm calling saying they don't make enough money. I know before I ever give the pre-approval letter exactly what income we'll be able to use for the borrower. Do you have um, examples of like what income would be counted and what wouldn't? Um, or maybe could you go into a little bit more detail on like what debt to income means for people who've never really applied for a loan? Like, what all are you looking at? Okay, so the debt to income ratio on a conventional loan, you don't want to be more than 45% of overall income. So let's just say that they make $10,000 a month, their total in debt cannot exceed $4,500. Then when we pull the credit, we're going to back off car payments, student loans, credit cards, anything that appears on their credit report. And then whatever is remaining is what we can use for the purchase of a home. Now, once they start buying investment properties, after they have received at least two months of payment from that person, we can count 75% of their new amount that they're getting for rent on that property. We don't need the two years. And that's something that's new that happened this year. We're not having to approve two years of rental like we used to have to do. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I know like just a few, a few years ago, um, just a few months ago, that was not the, yeah. the case. If you had an investment property that you had recently rented out, it would not, uh, that income wouldn't count. And we've got quite a few investors that are buying with us at WealthCap, as you know, because you're working with them. As soon as they buy one, they're like, can I buy another one? Can I buy another one? And um, luckily most properties are renting out pretty quickly so we can send you the lease and you can go ahead and get the loan to go through. Um, so I think that's a really key point for people to understand that like debt to income doesn't necessarily mean how much total debt you have. It's how much money do you make every month and how much do you have to spend every month? So all of those things come into play because I'll talk to people and they're like, oh, I don't have any debt. And then we send them to a loan officer to try to get approved. And it's like, yeah, you don't have any debt, but you're spending 60% of what you make every month on rent. Uh, so that will totally throw off your debt to income ratio, which means somebody like you cannot approve them for a loan. Correct. Um, so two years of tax returns, W-2, they need to be on the job 30 days or longer. Um, if it's in the same line of work, self-employed, got to have two years of tax returns. Would you say overall, is it is it easier for a W-2 employee to get approved for a loan or do you feel like it doesn't really matter as long as somebody has the history? As long as somebody has a history. Now, going back to saying I only need 30 days of pay stubs, you have to be very careful because if a borrower was in a job and then three months later they went to a new job and then three months later they went to another one, 
if they have more than three W-2 in one year, we have to have one year of W-2, not just 30 days. So mm. it's one of those, uh, if they'd been at a job, and the reason that we're going back to one time to where it's 30 days is last year, COVID, a lot of people lost their jobs during COVID or they weren't working as much. And so trying to, and they, their company didn't make it and closed down. And so they had to get into a new job. We're taking that into consideration and not making them be on the year like we earned. But we have to make sure that that income is considered stable. And self-employment, as long as they're not writing off everything, I've had borrowers call me and say, hey, I make 100,000 a year and I get their tax returns and it's a negative number. So it's not the amount that they actually grossed and brought in. It's what they included after they wrote off everything. Because if they tell Uncle Sam, hey, I spent all the money, I didn't make any profits, so I don't want to pay any taxes. Well, if you're telling Uncle Sam you've already spent all the money, you don't have money to go around and to, you know, go and purchase a new home. And there's things on self-employment, like when they do own properties, we can add back in taxes and insurance and um, interest credit that they had on their loans. We can also add back in mileage if they actually break down the mileage on let's say they say 10,000 miles a quarter a mile that's $2,500 so it gives them about $200 a month more we can add and play around with so there's a lot of little things that we can do on tax returns on self-employed people that actually come back and help them that's awesome and I know like I know you guys go through the entire return like you need the whole thing right like all of it yes yeah okay um so before we jumped on and we were just chatting about the market in general, uh, you mentioned to me that rates came down today. Rates, mm -hmm. rates, rates are something that people are asking me about all the time. Um, my personal opinion, I don't get too caught up on rates when I'm looking at investment property. I'm looking at what, like, what is my return on the down payment? That's kind of the main, how much cash flow is it going to provide? What is my return? But for folks who are hunting for the best rate possible and or always curious, uh, what makes rates fluctuate? How often can that happen? Um, you know, does it happen multiple times in a day, in a week? Like, give us some insight on what, what drives those numbers. The market, the 10-year treasury bond is always going to be what is going to be driving the market. And I've seen them fluctuate six to 10 times in a day. We're constantly getting race, uh, rate price increases and when they get better and when they get worse. So if I have people who are holding off hoping it's going to get better, then what I do is say, hey, we just got an email. They say price worsening in the next 10 minutes. Do you want me to go ahead and lock your loan? So I kind of don't want to say it all correlates with gas prices, but it kind of, if you watch gas prices, February 13th, when we went from in this area, $1.89 up to $239 to $249.59, we watched prices go up almost the full percent. So me locking a loan on February 12th at 4.375 for an investment, and then it was five and a quarter for at the beginning of April. So it's one of those things that I mean, it doesn't matter how good your credit score is or debt to income ratio, when the market changes, the market changes. What I love, one of the things about prime lending is we have what's called a float down option. So if I lock you in at, let's say, 5.375 and the market drops up to 0.375, we can lower the rate at no cost to the borrower because we know that they can go out and shop loans. And you have to remember when you're doing tax returns and you have your investment properties on your tax returns, your tax credit that you're paying, um, you get a credit back on that. So that is what you said is not to focus so much on the interest rate because that's one of the things that you can actually write off on your taxes. Mm -hmm. 
that's awesome. Um, that's a really important point for people to know. I know just the other day I got a message from one of our, one of our buyers that, you know, bought a property 60 days ago and got an amazing rate. And then he sent me like a, a pouty face, uh, meme because he just got quoted a higher rate this time. And he's like, why did that happen? And I was trying to explain to him, you know, like, bro, but that's just, it just happens that way sometimes. Um, and I do love that you guys offer that option so that people, if their rates come down, they can reduce their rate a little bit while they're basically in, in the, in the buying process. So something that I'd love to share, uh, talk about too, is let's say somebody gets pre-approved, they know basically how much borrowing power they have. They pick an investment property, they go under contract. What are the next steps that, that fall in place on the lending side? Not so much like on our side or if they were buying a property from anybody. So they've been pre-approved. That pre-approval is not like the final approval. Can you share about what the underwriting process looks like once they've picked a property and there's actually a contract signed. Yes, so we collect tax returns, bank statements, pay stubs and driver's license up front. We put in all that information and then an underwriter is going to review that information to make sure that I was accurate. Make sure that if they need two months reserves for their current property or for any properties that they own plus their new property, that they have the reserves in there. We order title, we order the insurance at that time and then we order the appraisal. So depending on what area, because different states are longer than others down in Arkansas right now, they're five weeks out on appraisals. They just don't have the appraisal pool that they have in some of the other states. So whether when I was closing loans in like 26 days, we're closer to the 45 days in some states because of the appraisal churn time. And it gets really quiet. And I tell borrowers, okay, for the next two weeks, it's gonna be quiet because this is our gathering period. This is when we're gathering all the information from title, when we're getting your insurance, when we're um, doing your verification of employments. And then we send that to the underwriter. The underwriter will turn around and they will send back the approval on any conditions. Now, because I've done so many with you, I know that if they're buying in a state that they don't reside in, that they need a letter stating why they're uh, purchasing there. I know we're going to need a lease if we get it. So a lot of the things that are done, that are conditions we have prior to. So usually when it comes out of underwriting, I need normally just insurance, the appraisal and title. Everything about the borrower usually is taken care of from the beginning before they even go out and start looking at properties. Uh, yeah, I love that about working with you and some of our other lending partners. You know, occasionally we have we have clients that come to us that they they have their own lenders and or they found their own, which is totally fine. Um, but if those lenders are not as used to working with investment property or us, sometimes those can take quite a bit longer. So we go into initial underwriting, we get the appraisal ordered, we get the title started. Once the appraisal comes back and it's good, um, then the insurance binder, can you explain maybe like what the insurance binder is, what that, what that means? Yes, when we order insurance, it's basically the insurance on the property. And I know that you have several people in different states that you've worked with that usually get put with the borrower to go in. And that's just making sure that if anything happens to the property while they own it or while they have tenants in there, that they are covered with that. 
So we give them our mortgagee clause, the borrower's information, the um, their loan number, and then they send us back in their binder along with the invoice to show what it is monthly. Hey, hey, if you are looking to transition from business owner or employee or salesperson or producer, et cetera, to investor, someone who can build long-term wealth without the hassle or the headaches of dealing with all of the downsides that come with real estate, then you should chat with somebody on our team. You can go to wealthcapholdings.com slash book, B-O-O-K dash now, N-O-W. We have a team of licensed advisors who can help put together your game plan with your goals. Where do you want to be? How much passive cash flow do you want per year? And what markets should you be in to maximize your profitability, but at the same time, minimize and mitigate the downside? There's a lot of investment opportunities in the United States right now, but I got to be honest with you that what I've seen a lot of times, people are putting together deals for maximum profitability, but they're not respecting the risk involved in the game. Our team can help formulate a game plan for you, tell you which markets to be in, which ones to hit first, and then potentially if we have a team in that market, even source the deals for you. There's nothing like what we're doing right now. It is top of class in every category. Wealthcapholdings.com slash book dash now. The call is free and the plans will be very, very, very valuable for you. Hope to talk soon. Now back to the show. Gotcha. I think it's important for people to know, like if you if you buy a property outright in cash, you got to get your own insurance. We can help you with referrals if you're buying from us or if you're not buying from us and you're just curious, like I may, I still may have a referral for you. You can reach out. But when you're, when you're buying a property and there's a lender involved, 99.999% of the time, unless it was maybe a non-recourse loan, but even those lenders are, you guys are going to want to make sure that the borrower, the buyer has insurance on the property as well because you have a lien on that property after it closes. You know, so that's not, it's to protect the buyer, but also the financial institution that has the loan. Um, Occasionally, you know, cash buyers might go through the transaction, not thinking about getting insurance in place beforehand. So this is just kind of like a warning out there. If you don't have a lender that's basically forcing you to get insurance in place, Make sure that you do that before you cash buy on any property, whether it's an investment or one that you're going to own or occupy. Don't wait two weeks and get the insurance later. Um, stuff can happen. Like we, we experienced stuff happening, uh, a property we were actually trying to close on a couple months ago, one of our investors, and two days before closing, a tornado blew through Birmingham and basically huffed and puffed and blew that house down. And of course we had insurance on it and, you know, we'll have to start over with selling that home. But I just want to throw that out there as an example to make sure that people understand the importance of insurance. Um, If you're not getting a loan, if you're buying in cash, make sure that you have that in place. If you are using a lender, they're going to make sure that you have that in place and they will not let you close on the property without having insurance because you guys are going to collect some of those payments at closing and, or um, have the borrower buyer, put that insurance in escrow. Can you, okay, that's a great, a great topic too. Can you explain what escrow is? Like if somebody closes on a house and they have the escrow collected, how that protects them? Okay. So you will collect for a full year of insurance up front. So using a thousand dollars, they'll collect that. Plus they'll pay for um, taxes on the property from January till whatever month they close plus three months. Now, 
they didn't own the home from January, let's say they closed in June, they didn't have it those first six months. So what they're going to turn around is give the buyer back that six month credit. But by having the taxes and insurance collected at closing, we pay for those once a year. So we'll always have them into an escrow account. Once a year, we do a review to see if they're short any money. If they are, we tell the borrower, hey, you can pay X amount of dollars and it catches you up to get your escrow cut back up or you can have your house payment go up a little bit. So the borrower gets that option of which way they want to do it. And it's a protection on the investor. So if they say, no, we want to pay our taxes and insurance, we don't want that part of the payment, it will still count in their debt to income ratio. We still need that. We just don't collect a year up front and they're, the amount they're bringing to closing is less. But they are still responsible for paying for those once a year. And the interest rate is a quarter percent higher on somebody who chooses not to escrow because it's more of a financial risk for us. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And like for me personally, I just I just like having it taken out. I have one property where it's not taken out and I have it set up on auto pay, but the ones where it is automatically escrowed, it's just so much easier because I don't have to think about it. There's just one payment withdrawn every month for pretty much everything. Uh so then I don't have to think about it. So we've got insurance, we've got the appraisal back. Um, all that is looking good. The next step is then the file will go into final underwriting. So can you share like what is happening? We went through underwriting, we did pre-approvals. So like what's happening in final underwriting? So underwriting is going to say, these are all the things you need. We need title, we need taxes, we need insurance, we need the verification of employments completed. So we have gathered all that information. Now we're going to send it back into underwriting, the final underwriting to make sure, was there anything on the appraisal that needed to be fixed? If there's anything that says this is as is or it's subject to, it's going to tell you the items that need to be fixed. If they're a W-2 wage earner and, I, and they pulled money out of their 401k to put for the down payment and I get their updated pay stub and all of a sudden they now have taken a loan against their 401k to pay it. Those are the things they're looking for. Are there any new debts that were not disclosed from the time that they originally looked at it to the time that it's not? Then everything's signed off on, the appraisal's good, everything's good. Then we send the initial closing disclosure to the borrower, which they have to receive that three days prior to closing. So where the initial closing disclosure used to be only for people who are doing a refinance and you have that three-day window you have to wait, there are so many people who are being taken advantage of and having higher fees added that they now have that for the borrowers to be able to review everything before it actually closes. So they know the exact amount of money they need to bring to closing. Gotcha. Uh, so once the closing disclosure has gone out and it has been signed, there's 72 hour mandatory wait period before we can close. Um, can you share about like what actually happens at closing? With a lot of our clients, they're closing remotely because you know the house is in Alabama, the buyer's in Washington, we're here in Nashville. So it looks a little different than when you're, you know, like buying a house you're gonna live in and closing at your local local title company. So we try to get docs to the title company five days before closing. So as soon as they do the initial closing disclosure and they've signed it, we send docs to the title company. The title company likes to have them at least 48 hours prior to closing so they can get with the courtesy closer. Like you said, when people are in different states, they send all the documents to the courtesy closer. They schedule it with the buyer on their signing. 
they sign everything, they email all the docs back to the title company, let's say in Nashville. And then what happens is they overnight the package. That way we can get the funding number. And so it funds the first thing the next morning. Okay. So everybody signs all the papers. They get back mm -hmm. to the title company. The title company then sends them to the lender's funding department. Correct. The funding department says all of these documents look right. And then you guys get the green light to send your funds to the title company. And then the buyer will send their down payment to the title company. Right? Making hand motions for those of you that are listening <laughs> to this on the podcast later and not watching me do the uh, stewardess or flight attendant, you know, wave thing here. Anywho, so everybody sends their funds in, everybody's documents get to the title company, the title company records the transactions, and then funds get dispersed, and the transaction is recorded, and the house officially conveys over to the buyer. That's basically how all that stuff works. From that point, transaction is closed, buyer's happy, investor's happy, wealth cap is happy, Jenny's happy, everybody's happy. Uh, from that point forward, what uh, typically when is that first mortgage payment due? Like we close, we made the down payment. Is it usually like 30 days, two weeks? Does it vary? It does vary. So let's say you close on the last day of the month. You close on April 30th. You're going to skip the May payment. Your first payment is going to be June 1st. Let's say that you um, have a home that you live in or whatever on your property and you close on April 1st, you're gonna pay an entire month of odd day interest, but then you're still gonna not have a payment in April and you have ownership April 1st. You don't have an ownership um, payment in May and it's still gonna be June 1st. So whether you close at the beginning of the month or the end of the month, um, the odd day interest is what's gonna determine it. So whether you're making a payment or paying it towards interest, you're just gonna skip actually making a payment to us, which we keep. 60% of our loans are going to stay with prime lending, but we do have different servicers who do service our loan. They just want to make sure that we're not doing anything illegal or unlawful. So a certain percentage of our loans do get serviced by another lender. Gotcha. Um, okay, here's a question. So there are some like requirements that vary from lender to lender. And there are some rules that come from Fannie and Freddie. Can you maybe explain to people who Fannie and Freddie are and like what, when I, like some of those rules that can't be bent every now and again, I have um, a very willful uh, investor who's like, well, why can't I just X, Y, Z? And, you know, I try to explain to them, like, there's some like, why can't I have more than 10 conventional loans, for example, or why can't I, whatever. Um, could you maybe give a little insight on like what, what rules come, who they are, what rules come from them and that really just can't be bent? <laughs> yes and no, because if you go out to anybody back to Fannie or Freddie on the guidelines, um, Fannie's like over 3,000 pages of their rules and guidelines and things. So it's really hard to say what all of their rules are. And they do have the thing to where they don't want any more than 10 properties owned. That's not just investment properties, that's any properties. So if you have a borrower who has a primary and they have a secondary, then they realistically can only have eight investment pro uh, properties on it because they can only have 10 mortgages on their credit profile. 
So that is a Fannie guideline. Now, prime lending and other lenders um, at the middle of February and the beginning of April, came out April 1st, is there are some changes on investment properties because they Fannie realizes that if somebody through COVID gets into a financial hardship, they're going to let their third party, their third homes go back and investment homes and land loans. They're going to let those go back. So they become more of a risk to the borrowers. So what they've done is they've said they really only want to see 7% um, investment properties in their portfolio. So prime lending can only sell 7% to our, our lender A who buys from us and our lender B. And then the rest of them we have to hold in-house, which is why the interest rates jumped almost a percent from where they were in February to where they are now. Is because Fannie passed that. They only want 7% of investments in the portfolios. Gotcha. Um, I had no idea that the the rules were that long, like 3,000 lines. And that's, I mean, that's ridiculous. How does anybody keep up with that? It's basically hitting control F and typing in a keyword and hoping that it pops up to the page that you are. One thing after being in the mortgage industry, the people who you hook them with, you know, 16 years of me coming in an hour early every day and reading guidelines to getting to know to where you almost have an idea, you know what guidelines are. So a lot of people call me and say, Jenny, I hate that this isn't your loan, but we've come across this. Have you ever heard of this? What do we need to do to overcome it? Fannie sends us our guidelines and Prime Lending has a great team that sends us out an email saying, here are all your guideline changes. And those are the ones you start to learn. You get a brand new lender who doesn't know all of the old rules and they're only getting the new rules, it becomes confusing when they think, well, this person have an 800 credit score and they have a million dollars in the bank and they make 200,000 a year, they should be able to do it, but it doesn't fit Fannie's guidelines. And those are the people I know when we run DU findings, which is desktop underwriting, it's gonna give me a list of the things I can do. And if I can't overcome something, again, that's from day one before a contract's even written, we're gonna know if there's gonna be any hiccups because it looks at all of the guidelines. Yeah. And just because somebody can't get a, you know, conventional investment mortgage doesn't mean that they can't get financing. It just means we have to get more creative. And I always recommend for investors, especially if they're just getting started, I say go for the conventional mortgages first, the quote unquote cheapest money, because the more in general, the more creative the options get, the less um, strict the requirements are to qualify for the money. Either you're going to pay in points, you're going to pay in interest, or you might have to make a bigger down payment. Um, you know, but in general, the more lax the rules are, the more expensive the money gets. So getting started investing in real estate, building a portfolio, if you can get the conventional mortgage, I always want to start there. If it doesn't work out for the investor, we've got plan B and C and like, I've got all those tricks up my sleeve, but the first, the first route we're going to try is always the conventional mortgage. Once somebody does max out their 10 or they can't qualify, you know, we'll cross that bridge uh, when we come to it. So what do you think are, if you were, if you were talking to a first time investor today that was going to buy their first rental house, like what, what pieces of advice would you give to somebody who is shopping for a loan for the first time? Well, for anybody, I would tell them also is 
not to pay cash. You have a lot of first-time people of what's the pros of paying cash completely for a home versus taking out a loan. And I've had several of the investors who we've worked with that paid cash on one and they come back to me to they want to buy another property, but they put all their cash in their property. It's it's a half point higher on an interest rate to do a refinance than it is a purchase. So I, I try to structure it from the very beginning on when people come to me on how much money they should put down. Because if they're planning on buying five properties, they need to keep that full amount that they want to pay one home with for their 20% down for all their other ones. And not letting thousands of people pull their credit because if when I pull somebody's credit, it's good for 120 days. So for four months. So, and we've had several of them buy three or four properties in that four months. And I just keep moving from one thing to another. It's be equitable with your money. Make sure you know what you're doing with your money. Make sure you know you have your reserves and just talking to them. And it's kind of like I baby them. Kind of I say I'm mama bear to them is these are the things that we need to do. And if you can do these things, we can close. And most of the people are very understanding and get me the items needed from you know the very beginning of the loan. Yeah, you do take, you're very nurturing with clients, which I love. Uh, that's one of the reasons I love sending people to you is because I'm very protective of my clients as well. Sometimes it gets me into trouble, uh, but you know, I'm fine with that. And I, I love how, how much you take care of them and really guide them through the process. I know when somebody is in your hands and I knew this eight years ago when I was first started, I can't even believe it's been that long when I was first getting started in real estate and I really didn't know what I was doing. You were amazing with making sure that the clients were really well informed every step of the way here's what's going to happen next. Here's how it's going to work. Um, and I think that's really important. And also what you shared too, about talking to a loan officer that has some experience and really knows the guidelines versus somebody who's brand new and they, they may not know. Um, cause there've been times when you've been able to creatively solve problems because you're aware of what the guidelines do and don't say. Whereas somebody, somebody else may, you know, may get stumped when hurdles pop up. Um, so I don't know if I really have any other, any other questions for you. Just if there's anything that you, you know, that is like burning desire <laughs> that you want to share with the real estate investors of the world, um, you know, the stage is yours. This is the time to buy. I mean, if Devin and her team have properties for you to go out and purchase, right now the market is yours because the amount of money you can get on return on your money on the amount for the rent versus what you're making in the stock market is just amazing. Sitting down with people and they're like, I only made X amount of dollars in my money market last year. And I showed one person how much they could have made doing rent. And they're like, I basically threw a year away. So even if you're not sure sitting down with somebody who can run numbers for you, just to give you an idea of what you can make, it, it could be a game changer for people. Well, I'll take that plug. It's true. And it's, it's not just the rent income. There's also the depreciation they get to take on their taxes. You know, if they have a lot of, you know, self-employed people, they have a lot of earned income. They need to offset some of that earned income. You can buy an investment property. You get the write-offs with the, uh, with the interest on the mortgage plus the depreciation of the property. It can help you a ton and the, you know, equity 
build up over time, the debt pay down over time. There's just so many ways that people can make money in real estate investing, which is why, you know, I'm on this soapbox all the time, <laughs> encouraging people to invest in property. And if you have any questions about, you know, potentially buying turnkey, what it looks like, what it takes to get started, I can absolutely help you with that. You can visit wealthcapholdings.com backslash waitlist, and I will help you. If you're interested in getting a mortgage, really anywhere in America, Jenny is one of our partners that can help you. Um, so why don't you let everybody know whether they're shopping for investment property or you do owner occupant, you do second homes, FHA, VA, all of it. Make sure everybody knows how they can find you if they want to chat about getting a mortgage for anything. Yes. So my web address is just my name, which is www.jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, freeze, F-R-I-E-Z-E.com. So you can go online and get pre-approved that way. It doesn't take very long. I can pull your credit and say exactly what you're qualified for. We do the primary home, secondary homes, investment. One thing, um, if you are doing a primary and you're a veteran, our way of saying thank you for serving our country is we take away all of our lender fees for our veterans to say thank you. So that is something that if you know somebody who's looking at doing a VA loan, we don't charge points or origination on any of our loans, but our VA, we do waive that fee. So That's awesome. That's awesome. And my, my cell phone is 417-332-7590. I give that out. I always tell borrowers questions don't happen Monday through Friday. They happen when you have a pop-up in your head and that way you can either text me or call me and you can get an answer without having to wait tonight. That's awesome. Uh, well, there you have it, folks. A little mortgage 101 for mostly investment property, but you know, when it comes to owner-occupant second home, a lot of that stuff still applies. Uh, reach out to Jenny if you have any questions about any financing. If you're ready to start buying properties, reach out to me, wealthcapholdings.com backslash waitlist, and um, I can walk you through how to buy turnkey and send you over to Jenny to get approved. Hey. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to chat with us today. Um, I hope everybody learned a ton. I know I did. I learned more, even more about the process than I thought I knew. And I've been doing this for a hot minute. So thank you so much for sharing with us, Jenny. And uh, we'll see y'all next time. Thanks for listening. Discover how you can start building wealth with real estate, even without experience in our free book, Why Real Estate and How to Get Started by visiting wealthcapholdings.com slash book. That's wealthcapholdings.com slash book.